Some of you may have heard a story about two years ago now, it's all over the evening news and lots of places, about a nine-year-old boy named Cain Monroe. Cain was living in eastern L.A. His father, George, owned a used auto parts store. It had been owned by his father. You know, and through the years, most people didn't come to the auto parts store to get them anymore. They'd always go online to buy and to order them. And so the, the store had pretty much become more of a warehouse, and, and George worked out of the back part of the, of the store. Well, when it came to the summer of 2012, of course, Cain was out of school, and so he went to work with his father every day. And he finally asked his father if he could have a cardboard box and, and play with it, and he brought it out front, and he thought about a little hoop that he had won at a penny arcade, and he made a game with this cardboard box where you could go and shoot hoops in this little penny arcade sort of thing. He was very elaborate. I mean, he worked out all the details on this cardboard box, just like it'd be in the professional places. If you remember when you play a penny arcade, if you score, you remember how the tickets always come from the bottom of the machine? He cut a little slot. And that way, if anybody made a score, he could go in underneath the box and he'd push the tickets out so you'd be getting your tickets. Well, I mean, he saw the details on these things. So, so he made that nice box and he had so much fun doing it, he decided to do another one. And so now he created a box where you'd roll the balls and try to knock over his little toy shoulders. He went home and collected his old Hot Wheel cars to give us prizes that you could buy with the tickets. And then he wanted a third one. He, he told his dad, we need a claw machine. People go in and they get their thing and try to bring it out. His father said, make it. He went and found an S-hook. He found some pulleys and wires. He got his cardboard box and he came back and he made his own little crane to be able to catch toys. Well, one thing led to the next one, led to the next one. And before long, he had taken over the entire front of the store with a cardboard arcade. It was amazing what he put together that summer. The only sad thing was nobody came to play. I mean, you had a very little foot traffic, and those who did come were looking for an auto part, and he'd be there and say, you want to play the arcade? No thanks, kid. No one. Not until Narvon Mullick. After he'd been open with three months with his little arcade near the end of the summer, Narvon happened to show up with a 1996 Corolla looking for a door handle. And when he walked into the front of the store, he looked over and saw this little boy, and he stopped. And he thought, I bet I can put a smile on his face. I said, tell me about your arcade. Well, for one dollar, you can play four games. For two dollars, you get a fun pass, and you can play 500 Now, Narvon is no dummy. He said, I think I'll take the fun pass. I'll give you two ducks now. And so they begin to play the games. And he watched this little nine-year-old boy go in underneath the boxes and put out tickets and do all these different things. He was amazed by his creativity, his engineering ability, his attention to detail. When he got through, he was talking to George about the door handle. And he said, it's amazing what your son has done. Well, thanks. He has a lot of fun doing all this. The only thing is, you're his first and his only customer. And Arvon said, we've got to do something to help that. 
And he thought for a moment and said, would you mind if I tried to help him get a few more customers? What if I go on Facebook and I try to create a flash mob for this Sunday afternoon? And so they agreed to the plan and Sunday afternoon, George took Cain out to go get pizza at the time that they had designated so that this flash mob showed up at this used auto parts store and a hundred people came. They came and they began making signs and when Cain came back home, here were all these people standing out here with their signs, Cain's Arcade, we want to play. They had so much fun. Well, it just so also happens that Narvon happens to be a, a movie maker and he decided to shoot some video to maybe make a documentary of what this kid had done. And so he put together this 11-minute video, a documentary of this amazing cardboard arcade, and he said to George, do you mind if I put this online? I bet we could get some more customers there for Kane. I bet it'd make him smile. And maybe we could even put on here, this kid's an engineer. I really believe he has innate talent. And maybe we could try to raise a college fund for him. George said, that'd be great to get a college fund. What do you think we could raise? And he said, I'm hoping 25000 25000 Are you kidding me? On Monday morning, they put the video online on, um, and on all these different places. And something bizarre began to happen. His phone began to ring off the wall. Before the end of the day, the video had one million views. A million views in a day. When Irvine got up on Tuesday morning to see how they were doing, if any money was coming in, over $100,000. By the end of the week, the video had 5 million views. It had been picked up by ABC News, NBC News, all kinds of outlets. Everybody was talking about Kane's cardboard arcade. And by Friday, this is after Monday when the video came out, by Friday... It was a four-hour wait of people standing around the block to come play. A four-hour wait. Well, they continued on, and more and more people began to come. People came from France. People came from London. People came from all over the world to L.A. to play in Kane's Arcade. Now, this is two years ago. I want to give you an update where they are now. Narvon realized there's a lot of children out there who need to use their creative powers. So he created the um, uh, invention, the, the imagination project. That's a foundation. They're now working with school districts around the world. On the anniversary of the flash mob, they invited kids around the world have a day of fun using cardboard to build your dreams. They did it in 13. They just did it in 14. Over 100,000 children in countries around the world participated in a day of fun and making their dreams this year, just about a month ago. On top of that, Cain, well, two years ago, his teachers considered him slow, not doing well in school. They were talking about holding him back. Today, he's the top of his class. He used to stutter, no more. He's given speeches along with Norvon at USC Business School and in Denver at a leadership conference and in Cannes, France at another leadership conference and speaking literally all around the world. The scholarship fund, it's up to 239000 
Now you look at Cain and you go, this was a kid who was smart, an innate ability to dream, to put things together. He had worked so hard. But I believe the real hero in the story is Narvon Mullock, a man who decided he had the time to help a, children, a child smile, the opportunity to create joy. And he would say, I never dreamed that something so simple could make such a difference in a child's life. This morning, I want to conclude our sermon series, Difference Makers. We've been saying for six weeks now that I believe every one of us wants to live a life where we know it makes a difference, that what we do matters, that the way we live life truly changes this world for a better way. And each week we've said we're going to look at what did Jesus teach his disciples that they needed to go do if they were going to be difference makers. And so we've been reading how Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I believe that Norvon Mullock is a peacemaker. Because he tried to put a smile on people's face and to create an opportunity for joy. You think about it. Every day, wherever you and I go, we create our world, the spirit of our world. And you get to choose what spirit that's going to be. It can be anger, criticism, bitterness, frustration, anger. You and I decide what's the spirit of our world. It starts when you get out of bed at home. How do you speak to each other in your family? How do you treat each other in your family? It's affected by the way that you drive to work. How do you drive? It's affected by the way that you treat the people you work with. You affect the creation of your world by the way you treat the person who waits on you at the mall or at a fast food restaurant. Every day, you and I decide what's the world that we're going to experience and live in. We create that world. Jesus was known as the Prince of Peace. And wherever Jesus went, you can see Jesus creating a new world for a man who had leprosy and he is healed. Or how he says to the, the important people, excuse me, I need to sit down and let the children come to me. Or sitting down with a woman at the well that was scorned by the town and shunned. Wherever he went, he created a, a world of a sense of peace. We are the disciples of Jesus Christ, who he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, you will be called the children of God. So how do we do that? How do you and I become peacemakers? It's what I want us to think about this morning. Just two ideas. First of all, I believe you become a peacemaker when you... Give up the right for retaliation. When you make the decision that you will not respond with anger to anger, insult for insult, hurt for hurt, pain for pain, when you choose to give up that right for retaliation. As the disciples of Christ, we think of Jesus going to the cross where the world did its worst. And Jesus did not seek to get even. It was not about now striking out pain for pain. We hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. It's a fundamental decision to be able to make to say, in response to the pain that comes to me, I'm going to choose how to act for the greater good for all. I told you one of the books I enjoyed reading the most this summer was a book by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It was entitled Made for Goodness. I mean, have you ever thought about the idea you are made for goodness? Well, he talked about the struggle in South Africa years ago with apartheid trying to bring free elections to the country. You remember how the whites had so controlled the blacks and the native people there and how horrible the situation was. The whole world looked on and said, this is wrong. But the struggle for freedom and equality in South Africa was a long road. Nelson Mandela would become the first president of a free South Africa, most popular man in South Africa, but probably the second most popular was a man named Chris Hani. Chris Hani had been born poor, but he grew up and he was articulate, he was strong, good-looking, and man, the young people rallied around behind him. He became kind of the leader of the the part of the ANC, the African National Congress, that believed in force. But as the years went by, Crisp came to believe that was done. That the only way to a new country was through a negotiated peace. And so he began to try to hold people back from, no, violence isn't going to be the answer. By 1993, there was a glimmer of hope that negotiations might start. People who thought apartheid could end were beginning to have a little hope. And those who didn't want it to end became afraid. Well, Chris Honey, he now is trying to push for peace and negotiate an end. It was on April the 10th, 1993, the Saturday before Easter. He had moved into a, an integrated neighborhood, one of the few in South Africa. He had dismissed his bodyguard saying, I'm not going to be a prisoner in my own country. He left that morning and he went to go to the grocery store and get a few groceries and newspaper. His wife was off visiting relatives. Only their 13-year-old daughter was at home. And when he got home and he started to walk up the driveway, a man pulled up behind. His name was Jans Walsh. He was from Poland, a white man who did not want apartheid to end. He simply got out and said, Mr. Honey, yes. And the shots rang out. He jumped in his car to drive away. A white lady in a neighboring home heard the shots, came out, wrote down the license number, called the police, and he would be caught before the end of the day. But Chris's 13-year-old daughter came running out of the house screaming hysterical, and she held her father in her arms as he died. With all the anger bubbling right underneath the surface, People knew we were about to come apart at the seams. There was going to be a lot of bloodshed. And it was that night that F.W. de Klerk went to Nelson Mandela and said, I want you to go on TV. Would you go on TV and appeal to the people? And I want to read you what Nelson Mandela said. Tonight I am reaching out to every single South African, black and white, from the very depths of my being. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now teeters on the brink of disaster. A white woman of Afrikaner origin risked her life so that we may know and bring to justice this assassin. The cold-blooded murder of Chris Hani has sent shockwaves throughout our country and the world. But now is the time for all South Africans to stand together 
against those who from any quarter wish to destroy what Chris Haney gave his life for, the freedom of all of us. He appealed for calm that night, all over TV stations the next day, and for the next two weeks. He was in all the newspapers. And the bloodshed that everybody knew was about to come didn't happen. Didn't happen. But the leaders on all sides realized if we do not get serious and negotiate an end to apartheid, we're going to have civil war in this country. A lot of people are going to die. And so they got serious, and one year later they'd be having elections. The death of Chris Haney did not lead to bloodshed and war and hate. It really became the impetus for peace. When you give up the right for retaliation and you see what is the good of all and you work for that, oh, you're called the children of God. You're peacemaker. Now, you know, you and I don't have to usually deal with that on such a significant and global scale, but you deal with it every day. Every day, somebody is going to criticize you, get angry at you, be disrespectful to you, be harmful to you. It happens at home. It happens at work. It happens out in the community. Every day, every day in so many ways, over and over, we have to decide, how do I respond? Because even in the little ways, I create an environment of the world, the world in which you and I live. Will it be one of anger and bitterness and resentment? Or will we seek an opportunity to create joy? Put a smile on somebody's face. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Secondly, to be a peacemaker, you have to decide. It is a conscious decision that you decide you will not let the pain of the past determine your future. There's an old saying that says, hurt people hurt people. And it is so true. When we become hurt in the things of our past, so often it dictates the way that we treat others. Hurt people hurt people. And it is so easy to live out of our past, and that's the way we begin to treat one another. And yet it's when you and I make a decision to do it different. As you may remember, this year is the 50th anniversary of Mary Poppins. Huge blockbuster film for Walt Disney. And in honoring that 50-year anniversary of the making of Mary Poppins, this year Disney came out with um, Saving Mr. Banks. And some of you may have seen it. Fascinating show. That's the show all about what did Walt Disney go through in order to make Mary Poppins that was so incredibly successful. Number one show, box office of 1965. Well, the show is interesting, and, I, and it really focuses on P.L. Travers, Pamela Travers. She is the author of Mary Poppins. And so the movie tells you a lot, but I started doing more research and learned some more fascinating things about her. It turns out that Pamela Travers was born in Australia, 1899. Her father had come from England and went to Australia. He was a good-looking, smart man, married a beautiful woman from a rich family. He worked in the banking industry, and they did incredibly well. They had three children. They lived in a big house with maids and servants. Pamela was the oldest daughter. But her father began to drink more and more, and he couldn't stop. 
and he lost his job, and then they lost their wealth. And things began to spiral out of control. They lost the home. They had to go move into a shack. And now there were no servants. They had to do it all themselves, and they were hungry. And, but the father loved his children. He really worked hard to be there to help them have imagination and to dream. He loved literature and tried to inspire them with that in spite of his own sickness that he couldn't overcome. In the end, he would die while Pamela was a young person. Her mother could not handle the stress and the grief. She went out and tried to kill herself, and it was Pamela who rescued her and brought her home. I mean, the family was so painful, so dysfunctional. By the time she was 21, she left Australia, came back to London, England, and decided to reinvent herself. You see, her real name is Helen Goff. Her father's name was Travers Goff. And so she took the name Pamela Travers. She loved her father, but she never got over the pain. She struggled. But when she came back, she began to write a book, and she wrote six different books all about Mary Poppins. And the book sold so well, and she made a ton of money. But at that point, she became about 40 years old. And she's writing these books all about a nanny who comes to a family who is dysfunctional, who is full of pain, and the nanny brings warmth and love. And it's the thing that Pamela Travers never felt she had. And maybe it's because of that that she never became very lovable. She never opened her heart to love. She never got married. And at 40 years old, she decided she wanted to be a mother. And so she found a family in Ireland who was struggling financially, yet they had strong literary roots. And they just had had two more children. They had twin boys. And she came to adopt the two children. But in the end, she said, no, no, I just want one. They said, oh, don't separate the twins. I'll take one, thank you. She took the oldest son, Camillus, back to London. They soon moved to the United States. She never told him about his twin. She said, I'm your biological mother. Your father died when he was young. And that's how this boy grew up, thinking. And whenever he became a problem, though, she sent him off to boarding school. But finally, at 17 years old, he discovered that he had a twin brother and that he was adopted and boy, it really split he and his mother. He began to get in trouble and to drink. He got married, had three children. They would get divorced. He would continue to spiral down drinking more and more till he died at a young age. It was his daughter who would say about her father, he used the secret of the adoption as an excuse for bad behavior. He couldn't move past the pain. And it's the world he created around him. In the meantime, Pamela was now struggling because the royalties from uh, Mary Poppins were drying up. But Walt Disney had been trying to buy the rights to Mary Poppins since 1945 for 20 years. His daughters loved it. He promised he'd make it a movie. And he'd been trying to get the rights for 20 years. And now Pamela was finally willing to talk. And so they talked and negotiated but, oh, she was such a self-centered, rude, mean, selfish lady. You know what? Those are the nicer things I can say. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. She came to the United States, and they began trying to work with Disney to make the show Mary Poppins. She finally signed over the rights. She got $100,000 for the rights to the book, 5% of the gross receipts. 
and she became very wealthy again. It was a very successful movie. She'd live another 30 years. She lived to 96 years old, died in 1996. And when she died, her grandchildren said of her, she loved no one and no one loved her. Pamela Travers never could move past the pain. The pain of her life continued to control her to the day that she died. And it's so fascinating that with that struggle and writing Mary Poppins, that Walt Disney would make Mary Poppins into such a successful movie. And you know, he had the same kind of childhood. Growing up, Elias Disney, Walt Disney's father, was a very stern man. Moved the family to Kansas City, Missouri when he was eight years old. His father bought a paper route with a thousand people on it. And most people would get a horse and a, and a wagon to deliver the papers, especially in the winter when the snow was six foot high. But not Elias Disney. Not when you have two sons, eight and ten years old. And so it was, they would get up at 3.30 in the morning and roll the papers and then go deliver them through the winter. He never believed in buying new shoes till there was many holes in them. He was so tight and the boys went out to deliver the papers and yet they had to get it done timely and make sure they're on the porch and don't get wet. And they got home and they'd have breakfast and then go to school and they'd leave school 30 minutes early in order to come home because there's an evening edition and they had to roll the papers and do it all over again and get home and have dinner and go to bed. And they did it seven days a week. It was horrible. It was so bad that in the end, Roy and Walt would run away from home. As an adult, Walt Disney would say, there was a time in my life that I thought about that eight-year-old boy every day. I thought about him every day. But I finally decided I didn't like that story. So I decided I love my life. My life is a miracle. I love my dad. He did the best he could. I decided I was not going to let the pain of my past determine the end of my story. Because everybody, he said, has a sad story to tell. Everybody has pain. But you have to be careful you don't let your pain determine the end of your story. As the disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to be peacemakers. And you become peacemakers when you start giving up the right for retaliation, that it won't be anger for anger and insult for insult, pain for pain. We strive for the greater good of all. You won't let the pain of the past write the end of your story. Isn't it interesting that Walt Disney would take the story from Pamela Travers who would never get over the pain and he would make the decision to go create the happiest place on earth and never miss the opportunity to put a smile on somebody's face. Maybe that's what it means to be a peacemaker. For you and I to make the commitment this week we will look for every opportunity to create joy and we will take the time to put a smile on somebody's face.
It means living out of the commitment of John Wesley who said, when everything that we say and do is motivated out of a love for God and a love for others, that's when you become a difference maker. And you will hear Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers for you. You are the children of God. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.